0: Hello, I'm TJ and welcome to my garden. Listen along as we explore the art and science of gardening. You can leave feedback for the show at 661-368-5177 or visit our website at tjsgarden.com. Welcome to week 41. Uh, In this week's episode, we're going to be talking a little bit about my background. I'm going to talk specifically about the learning garden I've been working on for the last year and a half. Uh, Then we're going to do a really good interview with uh, Susie Buttress, which has a little bit of an exciting (laughs) element in the episode. Uh, We actually, something kind of shocking happens during the interview that sort of derails our conversation a little bit, but we still get a lot of really great information out there for gardeners interested in birding, because that is... the the topic of Susie Buttress's podcast is she is the casual birder and I really like that interview because even though I suspect there was probably such a thing as casual birding before she started podcasting about it she's definitely popularized the term amongst at least podcast listeners and it's a really great idea to just become more aware of the birds around you not even if you're not specifically interested in say traveling to seek out you know, very specific bird species. Um, so there's a lot of great stuff in there, and then I'm going to talk about a couple of books. I have uh, Strabo Gardener I read recently. I also have a Strabo Gardening book by Craig Lahulier who also wrote uh, Epic Tomatoes. And uh, I'll talk about it a little bit more then. But there's actually something fun coming up with Craig Lahulier uh, for another episode. So uh, let's get right down into the fun. Okay, so now I, I wanted to kind of get to who I am and, and why why you should listen to me at all. Um, I have a little of this in the episodes I released before this one, but since I'm changing formats, I thought I'd start fresh. Um, I'm not going to talk too much about my personal background. I'm mostly going to talk about my current work, but I'll, I'll give you a little bit of scene setting here. So I learned to garden from my grandmother. Uh, she... Absolutely loved hummingbirds. And when we get to the interview with Susie Buttress, we'll actually talk a little bit about hummingbirds, too. Um, They don't get them in England, unfortunately. But she loved hummingbirds, and she loved gardening, and she taught me about gardening. And she is why there is a hummingbird in my podcast art, my logo. Uh, That's symbolic of her. And she taught me to garden as a child at a very young age. I've been gardening my entire life to some degree or another. Sometimes it's just been house plants or plants on a patio. Um, I sort of had a little bit of the English allotment experience at one point when I lived in an apartment building. They actually had little kind of allotment type plots. They weren't very big. It was really just raised beds and you could take a raised bed if you'd like. And I did. And I grew tomatoes and Uh, chard, and a bunch of other stuff there, and I ate a little something out of that garden bed almost every day during the growing season. Uh, It was in Watsonville, so during the winter I could still grow a few cold hardy crops. Uh, Not quite what I grow down here in Bakersfield though. So that's sort of my background and where I come from with gardening. Uh, Now what I've been doing for a little over a year, uh, is I've been working at a learning garden in an after-school program. Well, we do after-school, We we also have a summer camp kind of a thing. Uh, the garden is sort of an adjunct uh, to what's normally done. It's part of a nutrition program, which I am not overly fond of actually how gardening always gets put in the nutrition programs at school, but that's that may be that may be a debate for another day. I think it's more should really be moved more into like stem and that sort of thing personally. Um it's more science based than anything else, really. but for the last year and a half-ish, um so two summers and a school year and starting into this school year, uh, I've been running their garden program, and I was basically given carte blanche to do whatever I wanted in that garden uh, within within reason. and also, Our funding has been spotty, so sometimes I have a little bit of a budget for stuff for the garden. A lot of times I don't, so I've had to make do with what I have. Uh, So the garden is quite large. It's about a a suburban lot size. In fact, I think it was a suburban lot that they bulldozed at one point. And it's got one half of it is devoted to raised beds, which is where we grow all our veggies. And then the other half has a little lawn. Um, That lawn is circled by some fruit trees. And then we have uh, a couple of small ornamental beds and two very large trees that unfortunately shade part of my garden most of the year. So I'm not fond of those two trees, but uh, they do provide shade for the kids. They do unfortunately also provide a lot of shade on my fruit trees. But yeah, so that's what the bones I was given. We restructured the beds so they weren't quite so deep right off because I wasn't going to have the kids constantly crawling in and out of all the beds. We have a couple of larger beds for larger projects, but most of the beds are only about four to five feet wide, which is a comfortable distance to reach in from either side. Uh, So we restructured those right off with some volunteer help. They were really nice guys. And then we also, I made them put in drip irrigation because I don't work weekends. Uh, at, At this job, I only work during the week. And there are Holidays and other times when we're just not there. And in California, especially Southern California, it gets so hot during the summer that you really do have to water, in a lot of cases, twice a day um, to keep those vegetable crops producing. So I had to have some kind of drip in there that I could schedule so it wasn't up to when I could do it or when I could have the kids help me out. It it had to be reliable. Um, And incidentally, if you're working on or thinking about um, an after-school or school gardening program, That is something to keep in mind Uh, make sure that you are that you have some way to reliably water don't rely on it being a responsibility thing for the kids because the responsibility will fail at some point and you will have dead plants anyway we got the drip in we got those and then i started growing and the first summer was actually really productive uh Had a few things that didn't take, that sort of thing, normal stuff. Not a lot of pest problems. The only major pest problems we had and to this day have are whiteflies and aphids. Uh, We do have quite a bit of those. But I find that if I don't do a whole lot to control them other than, say, spraying off the plants occasionally, that they take care of themselves a little bit in that we get get an infestation of aphids and whiteflies, and then we get an infestation of long-legged flies and ladybugs. Uh, currently actually the garden is covered in ladybug pupas. (laughs) They're all over the place getting ready for, they're, they're pupating into their adult form to lay their eggs for winter. Uh, so it's all over the place, but yeah. So we get a lot of those great beneficial insects in there, which, which has been really nice. Um, I don't yet have a beneficial that takes care of the, uh, grasshoppers we get, we get out there occasionally. Unfortunately, the praying mantises who do show up don't seem to take them all out. So. Uh, you you know, I guess it's free labor, but you get what you pay for with praying mantises. But, yeah, so that first year, pest problems were relatively low. And then over the course of the school year, we started to get pests here and there. Um, Not too bad because the unfortunate thing about a lot of school gardening programs is that the school year is sort of the inverse of the ideal gardening year. So you get, um, you, you basically get fall, winter, spring, right? That's the school year. Whereas with the ideal gardening year, you are spring, summer, fall. Here in Bakersfield, that's not the end of the world because our summers get so hot that a lot of plants shut down. Uh, During the summer, I'm mostly taking okra out of the garden and a few other hot weather crops. But uh, things like tomatoes, once you start getting into 100 degrees, they don't die, but they also don't produce. They just sort of stall out until they cool back down. And so you can skip summers here, and it's, it's okay, but in other parts of the country, especially parts of the country with really severe winters, that's a dead zone right in the middle of your growing season if you're growing over winter. And so they have to deal more with uh, basically season extension than I do, one of the great perks of living in California. Um, so, you know, we had a pretty uh, productive school year as well. I was able to grow a lot of winter crops there. Um, and truth be told, there were a lot of things, because I was given kind of free reign and because I had a little more space uh, and I had supplies, I, I grew a lot of things that I never grew at home, that I've never grown myself previously. And so I've had a, I've got a chance to get a lot of really good experiences. I've gotten to set up some specialty gardening. Um, I tried a sort of low-end version of a lasagna garden that didn't work out that well, but I think that has more to do with the limited materials I had to make it than with any failings of lasagna gardening. And I also got to try straw bale on a very small scale with these little ornamental bales somebody donated. They're very small. They're they're like a foot across. But I soaked them. I put nitrogen in fertile. In in my case, I I basically created a solution from um, chicken manure. And I grew them with the chicken manure. And they've actually grown pretty decently. Um, The original things I planted in them died. But then I, I tried planting the... Uh, Malabar spinach in them and putting the drip line over them and they've they've taken off beautifully. They're growing just as well as the other Malabar spinach we have in the garden. Now, I don't know if that is due to the straw bale working out well or due to the Malabar spinach growing past the straw bale into the dirt. I haven't lifted them uh, recently, but nonetheless, uh, they're pretty productive. So it's I'm considering it a moderate success. And that's the way it's been most of the school year is trying out various experiments. Some of them succeed, some of them don't. Uh, going into last summer, our biggest problem was that we were not I wasn't able to spend as much time in the garden. They needed me to be with the kids more. And so a lot of weeds got ahead of us, uh, especially the uh, Bermuda grass became a, a major problem in the garden. And some of the pests maybe got away from me. Although, in truth, I think that it had a little more to do with the fact that we got various donated plants. Uh, leading into the summer that we planted out there, and some of those may have brought pest problems with them that we didn't see because I didn't get to be out there as much. And when I say out there, I mean out there on my own. When I'm out there with the kids, I don't necessarily have a chance to take care of everything that I would on my own. During the school year, I have half a day while the kids are in school for me to get the garden up and running and get everything you know nice and ready for them and pick out projects they can do out in the garden. Uh, during the summer, I'm with the kids all day long, so that's not as viable. Uh, But anyway, I spent that whole year doing stuff. Then during the summer, things kind of got out of hand. I spent the beginning of this school year uh, cleaning up the garden, trying to get the pest problems under control. Unfortunately, we lost a lot of our squash to squash bugs. But on the plus side, we got a lot of squash off those plants before uh, the squash bugs sort of reared their ugly heads. So even though almost everything but one giant squash plant have died in the garden, we got enough that I don't feel cheated or, or, or that we didn't get a full season. I, I am a little annoyed that they got my pumpkins because I wanted to have pumpkins for the kids. I was growing the pumpkins vertically, which is something I haven't tried before. And the squash bugs just destroyed those plants. Uh, they were doing so well. They they covered the, the trellis. They were gorgeous. And they had a big, beautiful pumpkin growing on them. And then everything just went to mush. Um, And squash bugs are a real pain. I I will probably do a whole segment on them at some point. They are a major pest of squash plants and cucurbits. There are some that are resistant, but a lot aren't. And the big problem is, like a lot of bugs, they unfortunately carry uh, compounds in their saliva that can be poisonous to the plants they're feeding on. So they are slowly destroying the plant as they're feeding on. Not only are they draining it of... You know, it's uh, it's sap, essentially. They're, they're drawing out all the nutrients out of the plant, but then they're also putting in compounds that harm the plant as they're doing it to weaken the plant's ability to produce chemicals to resist them. And so in doing that, they are slowly killing your plants. Uh, in the case of squash bugs, some squash can put up with them better than others, but unfortunately the pumpkins I grew were susceptible, so I lost those. But other than that, I mean, we grew broom corn, which we'll be using as Halloween stuff, and the kind of mystery squash that was survived it's kind of a a fun bit there because that squash I don't know what it was um I can't find it anywhere on the list of the squash I planted doesn't look like any of the ones I planted I'm not actually familiar with it just this little knobby thing it kind of has uh the warts like a warty pumpkin would but it's not a pumpkin it almost looks like an oversized green apple but it's hard so I'm waiting for those to kind of finish wrapping up whatever state they're in close to Halloween is what they're going to be taken off as because I think we're going to use those as we have like four or five of them on the plant we're going to use those as decorations we're not going to get any more because there's no other squash in the garden right now so there's nothing to pollinate it um, but we are going to take those off before I take the vine and the vine is huge the vine covers. I want to say 20 or 30 square feet. It covers a trellis that goes from one bed over to another bed. Sort of my attempt to make an arch with fencing, which didn't work out that well. I really should have used cattle panel, but I don't have access to cattle panel right now. So I used some lighter fencing, which is sort of deformed in the middle. So I wouldn't recommend it. Um, it's been a moderate success. I, I like the look overall, but it's kind of collapsed a little. So it's not really that good to walk under, which was the ideal. So I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, Definitely, if you can, get yourself some cattle panel. If you can't, then maybe live without it, which is what I should have done. But I I tried. Uh, But anyway, yeah, it's covering that thing. It's massive. Um, But it's one plant. I thought it was several plants that had survived. I got under there and noticed it only has one root going down. So it's only one whole plant over the whole thing. So, yeah. Uh, So that was my gardening year, a little more than a year, uh, at this learning garden. I've learned a lot myself. About how to manage this thing. Uh, I'm hoping next year it'll be a little more productive. We're changing the way our program works, so I may be able to focus more on growing volume. So we may be able to get more food out of the garden for various projects we want to do, rather than just having it be more of a showpiece with various experiments and stuff going on. But having that year of experimenting really has been very, very beneficial for me as a gardener. It's really taught me a lot that I didn't know going in. And After seeing that and after seeing school gardens fail and various stages of community garden here in the U.S. and stuff, I really that's why I'm doing this show. Also, when I've been dealing with the kids, I've run into a phenomenal amount of plant blindness, um, which I feel like I really need to help with because I can't save the world. Uh, Nobody can, but you can save little parts of it. And plant blindness and just kids' general disinterest in plants... That's something I could help with. Um, I can also help share gardening knowledge with people who want to get started gardening or maybe experienced gardeners who just want to expand their depth of knowledge. So that's what I'm doing. Uh, so that's where I come from. That's what I've been doing for the last year and a half-ish. And I think that's a good, a good place to leave off for now. I may visit it further in the future. Um, probably not next week, but in a future week. So stay tuned. Thank you for listening, guys. Okay, I have Susie Buttress here, and we're going to talk about birds today. Um, Susie, can you go ahead and introduce your podcast a little bit?
1: Sure. So I'm the host of the Casual Birder podcast, and um, it's a podcast about my sightings of wild birds that I see. I try to uh, look for birds just as I'm going about my daily chores because I'm a bit of a lazy bird watcher. Um, I absolutely adore sitting somewhere and watching the birds that are around I'm definitely not the sort of birder that will run up and down the country trying to find rare birds if I'm in a location and there's new birds to see that's wonderful Um, and I do like to see new birds but I also take a lot of pleasure in seeing my local birds the birds that are around me and one of the things that I particularly like to do is when I do travel just uh, see what birds might be in the environment that I'm in. So for example, my episode that was out this week, I was in San Diego recently, and um, I just took a walk around the streets there um, in La Jolla just to see what kind of birds residents might see. So I was kind of like looking in people's gardens and just wandering up and down the the streets near La Jolla Cove. And uh, that was just wonderful, just to be able to see what birds, I'm very jealous of the birds they see, but um, but that's the kind of birding
0: that I do. What what birds in particular are you jealous of? Uh, we little conceit. We were talking a little before we hit record, and I wanted to actually get this on here because, um, as most people overseas obviously know, but people in the U.S. don't always, uh, hummingbirds are entirely native to the New World, so she doesn't get them at home. <laughs>
1: I don't. I don't. And um, I, I was—I've been really lucky this year. I—I I was over in um, LA and Lake Arrowhead in June, and in March I was in San Diego and Mexico, and so I've had two really amazing vacations this year where I've been able to see hummingbirds, and it, it is wonderful to me. I to see this small bird that just flies around like Tinkerbell suddenly stopping in midair or or, you know they just zoom out of nowhere and they've got this really strange um, insect-like buzz Um, and even their call is so well the ones that I was hearing was quite a very high-pitched kind of like angry call almost they seem quite quite angry little birds for being so um, such amazing little things but yeah the the, the colors as well on on them and you should stop me if I talk too much, <laughs> but I was lucky enough to be on another podcast last year, Varmints, which is a an animal show. Um, and uh, I was talking. I co-hosted an episode all about hummingbirds. So for that episode, we actually found out a lot of the sort of science behind them, and more of the facts about hummingbirds. And uh, I was really intrigued to find out that the colours that we see on the hummingbird throats generally, the I'm never sure how you pronounce it, whether it's gorget or gorget, but the the throat shield area, which is one of the main highly uh, colourised parts of hummingbirds, it's actually not a colour at all. It's just the way it reflect, refracts the light. And so the true colour is something like just a brown, a dull brown, but the way is angled it it reflects all these amazing brilliant jewel-like colors and that's just fantastic to see
0: yeah it's it's called it's a concept called structural color uh basically instead of having a pigment you have a crystalline structure on a surface that that creates that color and actually nature uh, it happens with plants a lot too and nature blue is actually very rare um, it's very hard to create a true blue pigment and so Uh-oh. a lot of things have gotten around it by developing structural color like that. So if you didn't have the light refracting through those that sort of structure on the outside of their feathers just right, you wouldn't get the blue at all. That's right. It would just be a boring, like, flat brown color.
1: Sorry, I, I lost you there. Do you want to just repeat that bit about the, the blue? Oh, I was just in saying, flux.
0: in nature, it's a structural color. So I have a hawk that just landed in my... <laughs> There is a oh, hawk. Oh, my goodness. My, I've never had a hawk in my backyard. It's standing on top of a pigeon, and it just flew into the neighbor's yard.
1: Oh, wow. What kind of hawk was it? Would it like be like a Cooper's or a sharp-shinned hawk?
0: So that was something I was actually going to talk to you about is, like, ways to become more familiar with your birds. I'm not super familiar with hawks out here. Uh, mostly because I just so, see in my garden. That was weird. I've never seen a hawk out here before.
1: Um, oh, that is amazing.
0: That was. Like, I, I just not, turned not and I'm like, pigeon, first, well, it, it was a smaller hawk, so I was figuring it might be kind of like a pigeon at first, and then I saw the head, and I'm like, that's not a pigeon.
1: <laughs> so we have um, sparrow hawks over here, which, uh, which do take um, collared doves and... I think it's unlikely they would take a wood pigeon but maybe. So the the male and female sparrowhawks are different sizes. The the female is is larger than the male and can take the larger birds. Um but our collar doves actually you whereabouts are you based?
0: Uh, I'm in Bakersfield, California, so the Southern San Joaquin Valley, north of where you were in San Diego. I am sure. in, in the actual okay. uh, valley.
1: Right, right. Um yeah, so um you When I was out there, um, both in um, L.A. but definitely in San Diego, I saw collared doves out there, which I was really surprised at. But they're an introduced species. Um, but your mourning doves are similar to collared doves. So um, and you also have things like white winged pigeons and they are a little bit like our wood pigeons in size and, and some of the features. Um, so was that a mourning dove that? was with I, it, w- it was, was a it.
0: small gray indistinct figure we do get um there the, is the morning dove the one that's all gray with some black markings on it
1: yeah it's got spots on that might be um, that
0: might be it then because i know i see doves yeah. back here quite a bit um so that, that may have been hopefully that wasn't one of the pair that comes out here every year otherwise i won't be seeing them again oh. <laughs>
1: um but yeah so it might have been a sharp-shinned hawk um a uh, cooper's hawk is a bit bigger um i'm intrigued now to find out what what you saw but that's amazing that that's the first time you've seen you've seen one in your garden
0: well it's amazing i'm talking to a bird or What bird happened? <laughs> i just i just thought it was gonna be kind of exciting for you hearing the hummingbirds in the background because i'm right by a feeder there's one there actually right now and then i turn over and in the distant part of my backyard there's just a hawk on the ground nervously looking around to see if anybody spotted that it killed somebody <laughs> right <laughs>
1: yeah so yeah it'd be interesting to know the features so um the sharp unfortunately and this is one of the things that i've been learning while i've been over there uh, the sharp shinned hawk and the cooper's hawk are really really similar and the one of the ways to tell them apart which isn't very helpful uh, at the moment is uh, whether it's got a rounded tail or a squared off tail this one um, had kind
0: of a round tail i saw it because when it flew i saw its tail so it was kind yeah. of, so which one would but, that
1: be? I think that's, i would have to look it up. Bear with me a moment. Um, the, um, let me just have a quick That's look.
0: really annoying, isn't it? When you remember like that there's a difference, but then you can't <laughs> you for the can't life of you remember which one is which. I, I, I know Absolutely. that pain. And this
1: is always the way when you're out in the field. And, and because I am um, a casual birder, you know, I, I have quite a lot of experience with quite a lot of birds, but I'm in no way an expert when it comes to, all types of birds and that's one of the reasons i have people on my show for as interviews uh, for interviews because i can absolutely learn along with the listeners what are the features we should be looking for if we want to um, identify a bird i have a feeling that the sharp shinned is the one with the squared off tail um oh i don't want to hold you up now while i <laughs> oh that's fine you can do
0: oh we've just gotten completely derailed because
1: it's fine these things happen when you're right? doing some casual birding and that's one of the wonderful things isn't it being outside and just seeing what nature is around you you can miss
0: so much yeah and and that's kind of why I wanted to have you on the show is you know in, when you're gardening you're just outside I mean it, you, you theoretically can garden inside obviously people you know have uh container gardens and you know hydroponics things like that you can do things inside but you know full-on gardening is pretty much an outdoor activity to some degree or another and so you're always surrounded by birds because they're the only real wildlife that can get near you um so for somebody who gardens quite a bit who wants to become a little more familiar with the birds that they see every day uh what would you recommend as a good way to sort of get more information on them and become more i guess better able to identify them rather than just seeing a hawk or a hummingbird?
1: yeah So, well, first of all, at the very basic level, um, it's recognising that different birds uh, um, inhabit different parts of our ecosystem. So a hawk, you know, you would spot that. Most of the time you might spot that because it's just something very fast that flew through and you saw maybe some brown markings or something and it was gone. Um, But when you're lucky enough to see one land, we know that, you'll be finding a hooked beak for example um the forward-facing eyes the um very you know the talons and, and of course over there you've got um some more uh some bigger prey birds like uh sorry not prey birds predator birds like uh you've got the vultures which are very obviously um uh a bird of prey uh well actually I'm, I'm never quite sure with carrion birds whether you can call them think, a bird of prey
0: i think because well it, it's also convoluted because uh vultures in the new world if i remember this was years ago i learned about this but uh, in, in the new world vultures are descended from uh essentially waterfowl and the old world vultures are descended from raptors from hawks and stuff so they look when you like when you see vultures in europe or in africa they look completely different than the ones in the americas and that's that's because they're two completely different branches of birds that just happen to exploit the same niche so
1: isn't that that fascinating you know to to look further than your own country
0: yeah and here here we have condors um of course yeah the california condor i'm i'm right in the middle of their territory this is actually a big place where they've been doing the um rehabilitation and restoration work with them. Sure. And so I've seen those, you know, driving when I drive outside of town. But uh, those are just basically a giant vulture. Like, they're huge.
1: Absolutely. We were lucky enough to see some a few years back um, in the Big Sur. Um, It was a very foggy, cold, wet day. And uh, so they weren't flying. But we saw them hunched on top of a a hilltop. And uh, the size of them was just enormous, just seeing them hunched, perched, rather than flying. I can't imagine how wonderful it would be to see them flying. But, yeah, so you'd, you'd start off. So let's think about, like, in your garden, you've gonna, you're have you going to have a variety of birds that, that may well be there. So um, you'll have small... We have uh, something called um, blue tits and great tits, but you have little birds like titmice. And um, so you have the oak titmouse, I think. And mm. is there the... I'm just trying to think. There's another one. There's an oak one, and there's another one. Uh, I'm, I'm I, sorry. A bit I know we have that. quite a
0: few birds named uh, titmouse. We also have... Um, one I actually see a lot locally. It's about the same kind of... You know you know how there's just sort of a lot of generic little plump birds? Like <laughs> like just little yes. balls of feathery fluff? Okay. So uh, we have a, a whole group of them called Phoebes. I don't know if you're familiar right, with the Phoebes. Right. And, and I see black Phoebes out here all the time, which... It's the weird—you would think they'd be named something like the white-breasted Phoebe or something because their most noticeable trait is, yeah, they're black, but then they have that giant, you know—
1: White patch on, them.
0: and they always sit um, straight up, so it's always like a big flag. But I guess I, I looked it up, and I guess there was already a white-breasted Phoebe, so they couldn't. So <laughs>
1: that's why they got the black one. Yeah, we we saw them quite a lot this year, um, and they're a type of flycatcher, aren't they? So you'll see them perched on a perch, and then they'll they'll fly out to grab something, and then come back to their perch. Yeah. Um, so they're always watching for for insects, and I guess. They would be a good gardener's bird to have around. That you know, as you're digging around or you're disturbing earth um, or disturbing insects in the in the grounds. Oh yeah, if you, know, you if you ever like shake
0: caterpillars off of a bunch of kale leaves, it's it's a party for them.
1: <laughs> makes you a popular person, does it?
0: <laughs> I did that I, um, in the garden. I harvested. There was some kale that we hadn't harvested for a while. Um, I, I work. It's a learning garden, so I work with kids, and so we don't harvest like a farm would. We harvest whenever <laughs> so yeah. so i harvested a bunch that we hadn't really touched yet and when i took them out and kind of you know gave them a shake a, a ton of them fell off and for the rest of the day all i saw were these little uh black phoebes perched on various things wiggling little green caterpillars in
1: their mouth. <laughs> oh wow <laughs> so you were popular um you probably get uh, quite a lot of finch type birds so yes. um things like the the um american goldfinch which in the summer is that brilliant golden color with black cap. And I think in California you have the lesser goldfinch, um, which is doesn't have such a prominent black markings, but it still has a black cap. I don't think it's quite so golden colored. It's still yellow with a black cap, but not so vibrant as the American goldfinch.
0: I, th- I think I've um, seen them. That's the other thing with yeah. birding is quite often you... You can only identify certain birds during certain parts of the seasons, right? Because some of them yes. only color up.
1: Yes, that is one of my biggest bugbears. Same thing over here. So, you know, one of the things that I have the most difficulty identifying, um, well, I, there's quite a lot, but definitely waders. So birds that you would find at the coast, the type with long legs that would uh, be probing the soil, uh, the sand for um, worms, lugworms small crustaceans um, and very often they are almost uniformly a mottled brown color and they might have variations in leg color or um, length of beak but I there are such a lot of species and I really have trouble with those and I was last year um, I was lucky enough to be in LA again and I did a a walk uh, down in Malibu there's a a boardwalk that you can do near Malibu Beach and um, it's sort of a little nature reserve there. And uh, that's uh, that's an episode that will be coming out in a few months' time. It's one of my reserve ones that I'll put out. But I don't want to put it out until I've definitely identified all of the birds that I saw. And I took lots of photographs that day and, uh, and made recordings of the bird calls. And I'm having a terrible time <laughs> trying to work out what birds I actually did see. Um, just because just when I think I've, I've identified something, I then read another description and I think, you know what it could have been that so um yeah that that is quite difficult See,
0: um and I've been trying to um not so much record specific birds but just record like when I'm out here I, I get free sound effects and so when there aren't sirens in the distance or you know dogs barking um I like to try and record bird sound to actually have a sort of a background on the podcast because if you're out in a garden you hear birds so it, it's a natural yeah. uh add-on there but what would you recommend as way to actually record birds? Do you just kind of do it as you can with your phone? Or do you have special equipment that comes in handy? Well,
1: that actually is one of the first ways that I started to get into the act of making my own podcast. Um, I've been a podcast listener for a long, long time, over 10 years. Um, and a big, big fan of listening to podcasts. But um, I started to, when, when we travel... One of the things that I really notice and and one of the things that is just part of how I am, I will always hear bird song. Bird song is very important to me, bird calls and bird sounds. And even when I'm indoors, I'm always hearing bird sound. So being outside, I'm absolutely aware of it. I can hear it above um, any traffic noise unless I was right next to a road. But generally background traffic noise or background of children laughing and being out in the summer in their gardens, I can hear the birds and it's quite important to me to be able to hear that. And as we traveled, I became aware of the sort of soundscapes that I was hearing in the different countries. And so I started off recording them on um, just my phone. Um, Most phones have got some sort of recording app and I would just record them. When I started to get a little bit more into um, wanting to create a podcast of my own, I did buy a mic that would fit my phone Um, and that enabled me just to get a more pure sound. Um, As I've moved into making my own podcast, and I I do include a lot of bird calls in my uh, show, first of all, because I wanted to own the the recordings I was making. I didn't want to feel that I was you know, using someone else's recordings. So I wanted to talk about the birds that I was seeing and record my sound. Um, I used, at the moment, I still use the same mic. It's a Zoom H1, which is a, it's, um, I can never remember the difference between, I think it's a condenser mic. So basically it will record all all background sounds. And um, that's great. But what it's not so good at is getting sort of directional things. So if there's a bird straight ahead of me, but there's traffic noise behind me because it, re- it records the whole environment, I'm then stuck with the layers of bird sound plus traffic sound. Ideally, what I would have is a shotgun mic, which is something that's very, very directional that I could point at the bird calling. And it would, it would not pick up as much of the background noise behind me onto my sides. Um, and that's the way that I would like to go. The, the, the ideal mic would be, as you may have seen with uh, wildlife documentary makers, um, a, a mic with a parabolic um, cone around it so that oh. the sound is kind of drawn into the mic. But I already have a lot of equipment with me with my binoculars and my camera and my phone and my Bags and water and everything that I carry. The thought of carrying and and trying to look unobtrusive while carrying all of these things because I'm usually out on my own doing this.
0: The old show Faulty Towers. Did you ever watch that? Oh yeah. Okay. (laughs) There was like that episode with I think the German birders, and at least a couple of them had a mic like that, and you know it was it was just part of the kit they had on them to just show how like clumsy, you know, just having them jangling. Yeah.
1: And you know, if you're a dedicated mm. recorder, a, a dedicated sound engineer, then you would have, you know, a proper battery pack. You would have your parabolic mic. You would have your headphones. Everything a boom to get the mic closer to the source. But that's what you're. That's the thing you're trying to record. So that's how you're getting your pure sound. But when you're just a bird or out walking, and yes, it would be great if you could record these things as well. You can't really carry all of that equipment as well as your. Um, binoculars and camera and whatever so you you kind of have to balance all of the all of the different wants and needs and to be honest I'm I've been very happy with the recordings that I've made on my h1 Um, and it's apart from anything else as soon as I listen to these recordings it's it transports me back to where I was where i was when i recorded them so before i had the h1 as i said i was using my my phone and um we've been very lucky enough on our vacations to go to some quite exotic places and um we were in um we went to antarctica a few years ago and um so being able to record some sounds there from like the penguin colonies and then from there we went to um, iguazu which is in um, argentina well it's on the borders of argentina and brazil and it's um that was just to go from uh, antarctica with the pristine the quiet pristine air and just the noise when you came across a penguin colony to then go to a jungle area where um or a rainforest area where you had insect noise all around all different types of insects really exotic sounding birds the 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 sounds in the air there were just amazing um just really rich uh tapestry of sounds and then a few years ago we were also in um, australia uh, in brisbane area and again waking up for the dawn chorus which is one of the things i absolutely love doing when i'm on holidays to get up really early while it's still dark And then just watch as the world comes alive um, and listen to the birds so you get the first birds cheeping out or you may have had some nighttime birds calling and then you know as the as all of the birds start waking up and warming up and start singing you get that that um, chorus happening Um, but it was also different because you had like whip birds and you had all these different types of birds that we don't have here uh, calling out so I've, I've got all those recordings and just even now when I listen back I'm immediately taken back to sitting in that particular veranda listening to those particular birds and it's just so I'm very selfish with my podcast I record all these sounds for me and then share them with people
0: and you know in Australia you kind of have you can get tricked though because they have the it's the lyre bird right the one that can mimic yes hundreds yes. of birds calls so you can think you're listening to several birds out there and really it's just one liar bird having fun with you uh, I Absolutely. just I remember that because I remember seeing something where they were talking about how there are certain calls the lyrebird makes that uh, don't sound like they they're normal for the lyrebird and they don't sound like any other bird they they know of out there in the in in Australia and so they think that the lyrebird may actually be passing on the calls of extinct birds to each other. Wow. Yeah. So there are a couple of, there are a couple of calls. They still have, I mean, it could just be that the lyrebird has some weird, unique calls that are its own. Uh, but when it's not making, mimicking other birds' calls, it doesn't sound like that. So they think there may be some extinct animals that this thing's actually still mimicking because they'll mimic anything and they'll mimic each other.
1: Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and the famously, there was famously the one that could mimic uh, chainsaws and and old fashioned. Uh, photo um cameras with the click and the word yeah uh, I know recently that uh is it um to papa um the uh, New Zealand uh, main museum in Wellington had a display on about um uh birds that have been lost that are extinct but that they had recreated as they felt they might have sounded so they've got um and I think you can access this online as well that you um you can listen to what these birds might actually have sounded like, these ones that are now unfortunately extinct. Mm. Um, but that would be fascinating if uh, if the lyre birds are kind of somehow taught their young um, calls and songs from other birds that they'd mimicked, and that was being passed down through generations. That's That would be an amazing thing to, to find out if that was the case. Okay, So, so d- tell me, what other... I was was just going to ask you, because I did hear a bird call out just a little while ago. What other birds have you got around you at the moment?
0: Um, One of the more common birds we have out here... Uh, So we we have the weird situation in this part of California that a lot of the people here are actually originally from Oklahoma, Kansas, areas like that, the the famous Dust Bowl. And so... um, we call a lot of animals here by the names of animals that are actually native to the eastern part of the U.S. So a lot of people call them blue jays out here, but they're actually scrub jays, and we have tons of those. Right, uh, right. They also love to call the grape, or was it the fig eater beetle, the june bug, even though they're not actually the same. They're related, but they're not the same species. Um ah, Yeah, So, so that's... I have a lot of those. And actually, weirdly, not right where I am, but just a few blocks down where I work, uh, we get a lot of green parakeets, which are not native. are they the
1: monk are they the monk parakeets? I know that um, I know that there's a couple of different locations in the U.S. where monk parakeets have set up colonies. Um, I
0: don't know if that's another name for them. I, I know that I, I've only known them as green parakeets. So, right. But if if you Google like green parakeets in Bakersfield, it comes up. It, it's a famous saying that the uh, breeding pair got released here. I want to say in the '60s or '70s when there was a There was a a breeder out here of different kinds of birds who I guess something, I can't remember the details, something hit the cages, there was a car accident or something weird, um, and and a bunch of birds got loose and these things just took. We also occasionally get uh, cockatiels because a lot of people out here have them as pets and there are some small feral populations as well.
1: Sure. Um, I did stay in Pasadena um, last year and I know that there was um, a flock of parrots that flew around that area and would sort of fly past um, oh, actually, I was in Eagle Rock this year, and I'd, a similar thing happened around sunrise and sunset. About an hour after sunrise, an hour after sunset, uh, before sunset, um, a flock of parrots would fly past where I was staying, just on their way off to a roost, I guess, for the um, either to or from their roosts. So, um, and I guess your climate is mild enough that um, that they can survive quite happily. We actually have some feral populations here of uh, rose-ringed parakeets which, um, originally come from Asia, from India. And, um, and they, um, they have over uh, probably the last 20 years, pr- uh, produced quite large colonies that are now living feral in, in the UK.
0: And actually that was, uh, tied to a question I did want to ask about, which is like, I I've looked at, um, so I asked earlier, you know, how would you kind of get resources and stuff, uh, looking oh, at, sorry. Oh no, that's <laughs> fine. Totally fine. We got distracted by a hawk. <laughs> <laughs> there um but there's you know like when you look at the birding books all the birding books that i've seen at, at stores and stuff and i i own one or two um they tend to only focus on native birds in your region i've noticed they don't tend to include the a lot of the introduced ones um is that just a lot of them are tied to the audubon society here in the u.s in various ways uh yeah because that's our big bird society here <laughs> you have you, there's an equivalent yeah, in england not... right the
1: Uh, The RSPB, the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds. Yeah, and I I use the um, Audubon.org webpage a lot, and they've got a backyard birds section, a bird identifier on there. I've also got some apps that I use. Um, One of them is the Merlin uh, bird ID um, app, and that one's free, and that one's from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, I believe. Um, But you can, for some of them, set for region or for state. So you can sort of say, yes, I'm I'm in this state and I'm near the ocean and what birds might I see around here? Um, I think that the apps do include um, birds that may not be native. It will be any birds that have been recorded within the bird census. So if they've been, um, if they've been, uh, what's the word? If they've been verified as recorded there, then they will appear in the apps. In the British bird books, they tend to be any birds that are like feral or unusual, or maybe they've only been recorded a few times. They'll be listed right at the back of the bird book. So it won't be where you might find it. It'll be in the bits which are like um, vagrants or something like that will be at the back of the book. And so it might be that um, maybe your books follow a similar formula. Um, But online, you should be able to just choose the birds and these um bird id guides online are, are really good you know they, they will let you sort by size of bird and they'll give you other birds that it might be similar to so is this um you know is this junco sized or finch sized or is it pigeon sized or is it bigger and um and then you know you can pick all the main color was rust for example and you You can you can choose that and then it will give you a selection of, well, maybe it's these birds that are likely to be in your location of that size. And that that's quite helpful to to narrow it down. You asked me about how you sort of learn about the birds and um, I I learned by getting familiar with my garden birds and identifying them. And then reading bird books and just sort of thinking, oh, that would be a really good bird to see and and hopefully going to that location and seeing it. Um, But it's a very hit and miss type of way of birding or identifying birds. And you can fool yourself that you've seen something much more exotic than you really have. So, for example, we have um, birds called buzzards. Now, they're not the same as your vultures, which I know... um, some people call vultures buzzards as well. Uh, we actually have a kind of hawk called a buzzard. It's a, a large um, bird of prey. Um, but if you're towards Scotland, or definitely when I was younger, if you were towards Scotland, where you knew there were eagles and you saw a buzzard, you could very easily convince yourself you had seen an eagle, um, and it was most unlikely that you had. It was more likely that you'd been, you'd seen a buzzard. So it's a little bit hit and miss. One of my um, guests, um, it's my next episode due out, um, I spoke to Dan Rouse, who's a wildlife educator, and she was telling me about a a system that she learned to bird by, which was to um, learn a few birds in a family very well. So you might learn two or three birds very well. And then what you would do is if you came across a new bird or you wanted to identify a new bird, you would match it against the family of birds that you already knew and then look for just one or two differences and then explore that. So rather than thinking, here's a brand new bird, I've got no idea what it is. And this is one of the things that would uh, be difficult for me because you've got a lot of families of birds in the U S that are quite different. Like Phoebes, we don't have anything like that here. We have flycatchers, but I wouldn't, Oh, maybe a Phoebe was a bad example because I had noticed them perching and flying off and grabbing something and coming back. So I might think that looks like some sort of flycatcher. But for example, um, I saw a Californian tow. Is it Toey? Um, I always pronounce it wrong. I think it's Toey, the Could Californian tow. I,
0: I haven't heard yes. that before. <laughs> so I don't, right. I don't
1: know. Uh, maybe they're further south, but um, you can get spotted tow. So it's T O W H E E, and I always call it. Towy, but i think it's supposed to be toey right.
0: um
1: so i saw some california towies in um pasadena when i was staying there last year and i just couldn't think what kind of bird this was so it was it was on the ground but it was also sort of hopping up into little shrubs it was brown all over um quite nondescript and it was acting a little bit like our blackbirds we've got um a type of thrush called a blackbird and the female blackbird is brown just to be awkward and the black the male is black um and it was sort of acting a bit like a blackbird so then I started trying to look in my bird book on blackbirds but you have like I don't know about 30 species of birds that are called blackbirds so that threw straight away um but it wasn't that and i I just couldn't quite I was thinking well it's kind of thrush like but but not and eventually someone told me what it was and as soon as they told me what it was and I could go to the book and find that in the book great I then could identify it but I didn't know where to look in the book to find this bird because it it, it kept telling me in my head oh this is like a blackbird so I kept looking for thrushes and finding thrashers but then thrashers have got different shaped beaks and so yeah um so that that it can be a bit of a hit and miss way of, of finding out about birds but what dan was saying was you know and it's obviously different when you're traveling but in your own gardens you know you can get to know sort of four or five species that are quite different to each other so learn them so you know you might have a woodpecker you might have um, a junco or a phoebe you might have um a type of pigeon, you might have the morning dove or you might have white winged doves. Each of those are very different to each other. So then you get to know what it is about those birds that makes them identified as that. And then if you see a new bird in your garden, like maybe a goldfinch, um, you would match it against the birds you already see. So you've already seen, you've got a uh, you know you've got your phoebe and you've got your woodpecker and you've got your pigeon well it's not like any of those but it's closest in size to the phoebe so okay we're now going to be looking at these small um perching birds and and and, you know sort of work your way this way and and, you know if you've seen a lesser goldfinch then it's got a greenish yellow color um so it's you know you start looking down for colors and then you try to identify it that way once you've identified that one then that's another one in your repertoire so then you've got an extra one to compare against when you see yeah, another other bird. Um,
0: I'm just be. I'm struggling I guess it's true of all life forms because they all fit into nice little phylogenetic trees. But that's also kind of the same way you identify plants too. Is you look. I mean, we we first look at flowers usually, um, and we try to you know place something in its family and then work out. So it's very similar in that. Um, like I can you know if I see anything in the sort of uh, nightshade family, right? They all have. Very similar flowers. So once I see the flower and I can idea it as a nightshade, then I can work from there. That's kind of the same thing.
1: You're Absolutely. Just... This is really interesting, you saying that, because of course, this is how these classification systems have built up by people comparing organisms with other organisms. I have a real block when it comes to plants because it's something I would like to learn more about. But you just saying that about, well, you know, in the nightshade family. Now, I think i've heard that potatoes are in the nightshade family mm-hmm. and i kind of know what a potato flower looks like but i don't know that i'd be able to say oh yes that's in a nightshade family um i think i don't know what i would think if i was trying to identify flowers i can see what a rose looks like and i know daffodils and i know crocuses and mm-hmm. Yet, if pushed, I could say that potato was a part of the nightshade family. But I guess how this makes me realize that how some people will be about birds, where it all seems a bit bewildering. I feel that way about plants, and you're I,
0: you're I completely not alone. About- There's a phenomenon called plant blindness, and it's actually kind of part of the reason why I do the podcast. Is um, it's also something I deal with at work all the time. It, it's it's this phenomenon where. Because humans don't need to react to plants as much, right? unless you're specifically hunting for, say, a food plant or something, right? We're talking people living a hunter gatherer lifestyle. Um, unless you're looking for a specific food plant, plants pretty much just stay there in the background, whereas animals you have you may have to react to, right? It may be a predator, maybe prey running by. it may be a chance you know sighting of that. And so you have to react to them because they move, right? if If you miss the plant, when you walk out, if you happen to catch it, when you walk back, you can still pull it up and eat it or whatever. But the same's not true of a gazelle. Right. If you see a gazelle as you're heading out and then you say, I'll get it later. It's not going to be there later. (laughs) So humans are very good at, at identifying things that move like the cat in my backyard, which I'm going to have to fire my dogs. They're not keeping their paychecks. Um, (laughs) But (laughs) It's just staring at me now. But uh, the cat's, So a hawk and a cat, and this podcast Uh is having its share of distractions. But anyway, um, we don't have to focus on plants as much, so we don't. And so they just sort of bleed into the background, and the problem has become that that's happened at a professional level, actually. We train very few botanists these days. Um, A lot of schools here in the U.S. don't even have an actual botany program. And then we mostly focus, when you look at schools, a lot of the focus is in things like molecular biology, right? Genetic engineering, uh, finding, you know, chemical traits we like in plants that we can either synthesize or extract. Uh, And there's not a lot of focus on the actual biology and life cycles of plants. So you're not alone. It's a very common phenomenon. It's, it's It's an actual problem that the scientific community is having to solve because... We lose tons of plant species because it's just apathy. Nobody thinks about them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know that's why. It just, I think it's wonderful that you've got the podcast you have because I started listening to it, and I, and I'm trying to get more into gardening, especially wildlife gardening, and um, so I am trying to take more notice. But it's just a little bit overwhelming when you start. But actually, I've had people who listen to my show who have a similar, a similar thing with birds that they've actually lived a lot of their lives not even noticing that there's birds in the environment they kind of know that there are birds there and they see pigeons in the cities or whatever Um, and I've had so many people say since they've been listening to my show they now hear birds everywhere and they see birds so much more than they did before so I think there is something about if you can raise awareness of something people will notice it more so it does make a positive positive, uh, effect So absolutely, by having the show that you've got and telling people more about the plants and gardening and different methods and different types of plants, because I I listened to about five of your episodes so far and already I'm learning stuff and thinking, right, okay, I'm definitely going to carry on listening to this because you make it very accessible, even though it's maybe not the kind of gardening that I would do. Definitely some of the container gardening will be. Um, But even so, it's still very interesting hearing about some of the science behind I don't think I would pick up a book and start reading about the science of gardening, but to hear someone talk about it in a very accessible way is actually very helpful to me. And hopefully people that listen to me talking about birds will feel the same way.
0: Yeah, I actually um, – I started noticing them at work a little more often than I had before. and. So I started, you know, searching around because I, I was listening to podcasts at the time. And when I have my podcast player on and I think about something, I look for a podcast about it, which is weird because I don't do that any other time of the day. But um, and so I started searching around, found yours and started listening to you. And even though you usually, you know, yeah, I mean, your stuff isn't specifically about birds in my area. But just listening to it and kind of thinking about more and listening more, I think a lot of it too is like we let birds' songs and you know like the chirps people are clearly hearing over my microphone right now, we let those mm-hmm. fall into the background and we don't look up to see what bird's making that sound. <laughs> it's, there's just a bird, absolutely somewhere, yeah, and and we're we're okay with that. Um, so yeah, I I I've definitely listened to yours, started focusing on birds more. One question I do have, um, getting closer to the time where I gotta run away but uh sure one question i did have was for gardeners a big concern is obviously uh, wildlife damaging our plants (laughs) um so how do you what kind of birds are usually the culprits when you're seeing so like i I know um you know you're generally predatory birds aren't going to be a bad thing in your garden um but what birds are the ones that will like say steal seed or eat your fruit are there specific groups people should look out for
1: Well, hmm. (laughs) this is such a tricky one, because for me, because I'm so bird oriented, I would be perfectly fine with them (laughs) eating the seed in my garden and perfectly fine if they started eating my flowers, because I don't have that bias of, well, you know, I've worked really hard to get these plants to be my food crop or whatever. Um, Pigeons are notorious for eating, um, eating foods where we are. uh, We have these blackbirds I mentioned before that will absolutely eat all your strawberries and your raspberries before you've had a chance to harvest them and um my parents have a big allotment which is um like a a, a piece of ground that you can rent uh, that's separate from where you live but you yeah. can grow vegetables and things on and um and i know that they've had you know they have to net everything or, or put frames around things so that the birds just don't come in mind you they've had Bigger problems with badgers eating their corn crops than than birds eating their berries, but but definitely in the past, you know, they they lost a lot of raspberries and strawberries to to blackbirds. Um, I, in my garden, I do grow some uh, fruit crops. And um, so, you know, you might get, the blue tits might come and and start pecking at some of your apples. Definitely when we had the pear tree, they would peck just a little bit out of the pear tree, uh, about out of the pears. They may have been eating the fruit or they may have been eating aphids on the fruit, which then damaged the skin. But it then meant you had plant uh, fruits going rotten. Um, I, I think I would be very much the sort of gardener that just allows you know protects those plants that i absolutely want to have as food crops and then allows other plants to be food crops for the birds because i definitely feel that we should be trying to work in balance and not trying to um, exclude things because it's all part of the whole environment and uh, to have a pristine no bird or an exclusion zone is um, i think that's hurtful so from my point of view, I'd be like, let the birds eat. but I can understand from someone who's put a lot of effort into growing crops and looking looking after them, the last thing you want to do is come out and find a peck taken out of every thing that you were going to eat yourself. So I think
0: uh, you, you kind of stimulated something for me to think too is that a lot of times birds may be doing damage too, but it may not you may not have a bird problem. you may have a pest problem because a lot of birds are insectivores and they are looking for uh, the bugs on our plants. Absolutely. So if if you're getting a lot of damage, it may it may just be a bird that's too big or too aggressive going after a, a bug that you need to take care of first.
1: Yeah, but then you need to you need to be very careful about what what methods you're using to control the bugs because you know bird life. A lot of birds, especially we're finding this in the UK, a lot of birds are in decline, and it's because their their natural food sources are just being taken away either by um, you know we don't have the variety of things in the environment anymore that allow them to feed, um, or, you know, for other methods, but you know, you need to be careful not to be using too much. Um, maybe looking at more natural methods of controlling, um, insects, if you are looking to protect your crops rather than using chemicals too much. But I guess you'd know more about that than me, but my feeling is that we'd want to be looking at some sort of balance there.
0: Yeah. I mean, the biggest problem we have is, uh, Insecticides, at least in the U.S., is insecticides don't necessarily target birds. Um, like, you can get... You can actually... I, I've been accidentally sprayed in the face a few times with insecticides. It's not fun. It can make you a little nauseous. But it, it isn't going to kill you, right? They're not targeting us. They're, they're things that affect insect growth cycles or something like that. But the thing we did find... Um, I'm trying to remember the name of the book. It was something like Silent Dawn or something like that. It was about the basically what was killing off our uh, bald eagles, which is that... The uh, DDT, which affects the growth cycle of insects, also affects the calcification of eggs in subspecies of birds. Right. And so the eagles were laying eggs that were so weak that when they actually went to sit on their eggs, they would crush them.
1: Right. Right.
0: Yeah. So it wasn't it wasn't necessarily a poison. The poison killed eagles. It was that the poison prevented them from completing their reproductive cycle, which obviously yes. prevented yeah. eagles from happening. So. Um.
1: But again, with the insects, I mean, a lot of insects do form the, the bulk of the diet of the birds. So if you're removing insects, then you're removing their food, food sources too. So that's uh, another element that, you know, needs to be sort of put into the equation. But, um, but absolutely, becoming more aware of what's around you, both plant wise and animal wise, it just enriches your life and it makes you so much more aware of the environment. And I think that can only be a good thing.
0: Great. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast.
1: Oh, and it was lovely to speak with you. Thank really you nice talking so to you, too.
0: Okay, so now let's get into some strawbell gardening, at least some straw bell gardening books. So I have, uh, let's start with the, I, I don't know if it's the original. I know it's the one that most people know about. Uh, it's the newest edition, though. Uh strawbell Gardens Complete by Joel Karsten. Uh, let me read through some of the cover fun here for you. Updated edition, breakthrough method for growing vegetables anywhere earlier and with no weeding, which uh, most of these gardening books seem to have that somewhere on the cover. And I won't believe it till I see it. Um, Everybody has to garden. or Everybody has to. I'm sorry. Well, yes, I, I would love it if everybody had to garden. But I mean, everybody has to weed at least a little. Uh, on the back cover, whatever your gardening challenge, Strawbell gardening holds the solution. This new edition of Strawbell Gardens Complete is the only book you need to get started with the revolutionary gardening method that has taken the world by storm. Written by Joel Karsten, the originator of Strawbell gardening, this exciting updated—I'm sorry, this exciting update—contains detailed start-to-finish instructions for growing vegetables and straw anywhere, plus many new ideas and projects to help you enjoy your strawbale gardening experience even more. Among the new subjects, cultivating mushrooms and straw bales. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about that chapter. That's kind of cool. How to grow plants in non-straw bales, including hay. Tips and ideas for making your straw bale garden more attractive. How to make a seasonal greenhouse for your bales. Trellising projects for growing vertically and much more. I don't believe there's anything fun on the inside covers. Nope. Okay, so let's go to the table of contents real quick. Uh, so you got the introduction, then it goes into straw bale gardening in small, urban, and unusual spaces. Uh, the next chapter is straw. Planting your straw bale gardening, organic straw bale gardens, bale variations and options, conditioning the bales, planting seeds and seedlings, growing your straw bale garden, straw bale gardens and water, harvest time, what remains is gold, straw bale structures, growing mushrooms and straw, plant profiles, photos, credits, resources, uh, conversions, an index, and then meet the author, which just covers some stuff about the author himself. Uh, So basically, like a lot of these, I think I talked about this in the last episodes, but um, those episodes may no longer be available because I'm rebooting the show with this episode, so some of the content may change that's available. So to start new, um, these sort of system books tend to lay out some kind of gardening system. Uh, that usually isn't actually nearly as revolutionary as it's advertised to be. This isn't to say that it isn't necessarily something cool, like in this case, trouble gardening is definitely cool. Uh, but usually there are sound horticultural principles behind it, unless the system just doesn't work at all. That isn't the case here. Uh, so it's usually some simple system that if you gave it to anybody who, you know, studies horticulture, agriculture, anything like that, they're going to look at it and see kind of what the system is break down why it actually works based on what we know about raising plants um and go yeah it works but usually these books try to present as some revolutionary thing it can be depending upon how it's packaged and set up um but yeah so these books usually lay out that method first and then give you a whole bunch of stuff this one's a little bit different it does sort of uh take i think until like the let's see Yeah, it, it's one, two, three, four, five, about six chapters before it actually gets to conditioning the bales, which is the main the main thing you really need to know to actually do the straw gardening method. So in simple terms, what you're doing is kind of like hydroponics in compost, if that makes any sense. Um, so you condition the bales with a nitrogen source, which feeds bacteria, which helps break down the bales. It's basic composting. Right Your greens and your browns, it's the uh, carbon materials and the nitrogen materials to break them down. So that that's nothing new. <laughs> it's just a new way of doing it. Uh, basically, as per the book, the author discovered this, you know, growing up on a farm, he used to see that the bales that were rotting often had weeds growing right out of them. so there had to be something there for them to feed on. And what he's found is he could sufficiently grow uh, plants just fine. In a straw bale, that had been conditioned with some kind of a nitrogen source and some kind of a sort of general fertilizer to get some other nutrients in there and basically soaked through with water repeatedly until the natural biological processes started kicking off. And what you ended up with at the end of the season was decomposed hay and ideally vegetables or flowers. <laughs> so that's that's the, the base of it is you spend a week, uh, about 10 days, and then you... It's a series of... I'm not going to lay it out too much because it's laid out in the book and I actually would recommend picking up the book. Um, But it basically is 10 days of watering plants and then adding fertilizers to kickstart this process. Primarily nitrogen to begin with. Then at the end, you add a more complete fertilizer to make sure you have the other uh, elements, you know, phosphorus, potassium, manganese, all the fun stuff that's in, you know, more complete fertilizers. So you add that stuff at the end because... There isn't a lot of inherent nutrition in the straw except for organic matter and all the benefits that can bring. There is some bioavailable nutrition from the compost itself that's being produced as a byproduct of this process. Um, another advantage of this process is that you can get your seeds in a little early because you're effectively planting into an active compost heap. So there's a lot of heat being generated as well. Um, so that's that's the core of what straw bale gardening is. Now, what this book does then is lay out all kinds of different ways you can do it. Uh, The first few chapters show different ways you can squeeze it into tight spaces, urban environments, places you wouldn't normally be able to grow vegetables. Um, It then goes into conditioning, shows you how to do all that, how to set it up. There is a lot of sort of accessories and tips on how to hack it, I guess you could say. Um, You know, adding trellises, Uh, it has a whole part on how to set a trellis structure, whole parts on how to you know, lay out and plan out different uh, arrangements of plants, that sort of thing. It's also got some bits on controlling your pests, uh, primarily with organic methods. And then it also has a section, Bale Variations and Options, which actually shows you how to create a press that lets you create your own bales, effectively bales, from other garden materials. Now these won't be as good structurally as straw bales, uh, but they do work. And there's also a section here on uh, adapting this to use hay bales if you have to. The problem with hay bales is that they will have seed in them because the main difference between hay and straw is straw is a byproduct of agriculture. You're basically taking uh, the grassy parts of small grains, usually. You're taking out the actual seed heads because you're harvesting those for the grain, and then all the remaining matter is broken up into straw, which is primarily used as animal bedding. But then when you get into hay... That is grown as fodder. That is meant to be eaten by animals. And so that usually includes seeds and other materials that have quite a bit of nutrition in them. Especially if it's something like alfalfa hay, which is a legume. And you're actually not getting any of sort of the straw qualities. So this book lays out how to actually kind of get away with doing a uh, a hay bale instead of a straw bale. Which I have done myself actually. And it's pretty much the same as it was in here. I actually did it before I got the book. I just kind of guessed based on some other material I'd read. And my method actually turned out to be pretty close to what he does in the book. Um, In my method, I used, they were little ornamental hay bales that you could buy, like, I think at florists or something like that. We got them donated from some other thing. They were used to decorate some tables, and then we ended up with them. So I soaked two of them thoroughly. Thirdly. I soaked two of them thoroughly uh, with some chicken manure to give them that nitrogen kick and some other nutrients. And then I planted into them. The seeds I planted into them didn't work out that well, but I think a bird had actually gotten into the top of the bale. It was kind of messed up. Um, But later I planted Malabar spinach into those bales and put them where they could get hit by the drip irrigation, and they did quite well. They're still growing, actually, and it is October now. So uh, they've grown all season, and they grew just as well as anything I put in soil. Now, I I haven't lifted them up yet to check and see how much the roots have actually gone through the bale into the soil, so that maybe that they're growing so well because they're actually just digging right into the soil. But I suspect when I lift them, they'll probably lift up actually quite a bit, and there'll just be a few little root hairs digging down, catching a little bit of the top of the soil. So, yeah, this method is totally usable. Um, the, the press is actually kind of neat because you can take garden waste. Uh, also, the old straw bale, so after you use a straw bale for a season... You could take the remains, the parts that are still straw, put them in this press, tie it up, and you get a looser, not quite as good, but still functional straw bale that you can use for this gardening method. It takes a little more structure around it. You have to put a fence and some other stuff around it, but it does work. Um, he also lists a fertilizer they made themselves for conditioning the bales that you can buy. You don't have to buy it, but it's already formulated for doing exactly this as opposed to hunting down a cheap fertilizer to do it for you. Like, he he actually, he points out that he has created mixes to do this kind of stuff, but then he mostly recommends actually buying cheap uh, lawn fertilizer if you're not too worried about it being organic. So he actually doesn't specifically recommend his. He just shows his as a slightly better than the cheap lawn fertilizer, but he still kind of pushes lawn fertilizer. He still says basically just go get yourself a bag of cheap, high nitrogen, low everything else garden fertilizer or lawn fertilizer specifically, and to use that. Then there's a whole section called What Remains is Gold. Uh, That one basically just tells you how to use the straw bale as compost and mulch after you've already grown your vegetables in it. So after the season's over, what you are left with is some really broken down, really decomposed uh, straw bales. So it's basically just a perfect mulch and compost. Uh, Then that's followed up by a whole chapter on the greenhouse, which is mentioned on the back. And that basically is just taking cattle panels, bending them over it. So you've probably seen these on Instagram. People are doing trellises like this all the time, but you bend it over uh, a group of straw bales and then you put, you know, your poly vinyl over the top of it, tacked as a greenhouse. And you seal that up and, you know, let that warm up, basically using the compost to warm it up. So it's a heated greenhouse effectively. And that can get you started in a cold climate. It can get you started months before it's ready to actually plant out in the normal garden. Uh, it's not just for seed starting, though. He actually is recommending this specifically for starting off your strawbell garden. And then you take the structure off of it when the weather improves, you know, gradually, obviously. You don't just want to rip it off one day, but you, you know, gradually open it up. And then when the weather's warm enough, you finally remove it all after everything's kind of hardened up and just grow through your season that way. Um, so it all kind of works together simply. And then you can store those materials away and use them again next year. And then the final part that was really, really interesting to me, was the uh, mushroom uh, system. Basically, what you do is you take a straw bale and put it in a cooler, boil it to kind of kill off any, basically any any bacteria or any uh, fungi on there that you don't want. Then you introduce your inoculant. And this will work on any of the fungi that can be grown on compost or straw as a growth medium, which is quite a few. It's not all of them. You can't grow believe it's shiitake you can't grow this way but you can grow a few others uh, oyster mushrooms a lot of the very popular ones i think yeah wine caps you can grow um yeah shiitake is the main one you can't grow other ones that have to grow on wood you can't grow you do have to grow those on a log but all the other ones that'll grow okay on compost straw other materials you can grow this way so that's really kind of neat so this book is pretty exhaustive not so much on the method itself which is fairly straightforward to explain and lay out, but it goes into a lot of detail of all the variations you can do to it, all the ways you can tweak it for this method or that, different things you can grow on it, ways to grow ornamental things kind of on the side of the bale, so it kind of covers up that bale and is a little more decorative if you're planting, say, in your front yard. Uh, it also covers structures and other things around it. Now I wanted to talk about Craig Lahoulier's <laughs> straw bale gardening book. Uh, his is an 88 page counting the index book yeah 88 pages oh i'm sorry it it does go to 91 pages counting the index uh it's almost like a little pamphlet kind of thing it's a very small book and this one just covers growing vegetables um so let's uh, i'll dig into it the same way i did the first one so the front of it it's a story basics book for self-reliance uh it's a series i think they do i saw a couple other ones at the store when i picked this one up Growing vegetables in straw bales. Easy planting, less weeding. Craig LaHullier is kind of an honest guy. Uh, he, I, I've noticed in, in a lot of his stuff, he never says things like no weeding. He's pretty straightforward. He says less weeding. So I like that about him. Um, so easy planting, less weeding, early harvest. Craig LaHullier. On the back, the easiest garden ever. Straw bales make perfect beds for your plants. They are inexpensive, provide an ideal growing, growing medium for roots have few weeds, and are easy to maintain. Again, I like that. Few weeds, not no weeds. Let's be realistic. Uh, Gardening expert Craig LaHulier walks you through the process of selecting straw bales and fertilizer, preparing bales for planting, choosing the best vegetables to grow, and caring for your straw bale garden. Uh, The warm beds produce earlier harvests, and after the season is over, you can use the broken down straw for mulching or adding structure to soil. Several things that are included in the other book are just mentioned on the back cover in this one, which is kind of fun. Yeah, it is a series, because more in the storybook series. They have one on building raised beds and one on seed starting. I'm guessing they probably have a few more. Those are just what are currently available when this came out. Um, This one came out 2015. Uh, The Strawberry Gardens one I have, the Joe Karsten book, that one, that's the new edition. Um, So that is was copyrighted 2013, 2015, and this new edition is 2019. So, uh, the Craig book probably came out about the same time. I'll have to ask him. So, I am interviewing Craig LeHullier and uh, Patricia, I forget her last name, but I'll have it right by the next episode. Um, the two, basically, people in, behind the Dwarf Tomato Project. We're going to talk Dwarf Tomatoes in the next episode. I'm also probably going to review his book, Epic Tomatoes, in the next episode. Um. So I can bug him a little bit about the process for this as well then. But basically this one is just a smaller, more focused version of the other one. Uh, Has acknowledgements and introduction. Then it goes chapter one, getting started. Chapter two, gathering materials. Chapter three, planning for success. Chapter four, preparing the bales. Chapter five, caring for your bale garden. Chapter six, what to grow and how to grow it. Chapter seven, problem solving. Chapter eight, what remains. And the chapters here are pretty instructive. This one, unlike the other book, isn't like, here's the system in one little blob, and then here's all the things you can do with this system. This one is primarily the system. Um, So each step, I'm sorry, each chapter walks you through the steps in getting the garden right, tells you how to get the materials right, how to get everything right, how to prep the bales, how to start gardening, what you can plant in it. There's a little bit on... Some things you can do as far as like in the Caring for Your Garden, it talks about supports and other things that you can do. And these are a little different than what you'll find in the Karsten book. These are ones that, uh, that Craig O'Hillier has actually experimented with himself. He did talk about the fact that he was doing a few straw bale gardens, I believe, at the end of Epic Tomatoes, um, that he was experimenting with that. So this is clearly the stuff he's learned from it. Uh, he has different support methods and other things listed in here that he found useful. So it doesn't overlap entirely with the other book. And he has a whole uh, section on planting your transplants, direct seeding, the different uh, crops you can grow in a straw bale and how to grow them. Whole part here on, it's not like a whole chapter, but I think there's a part on different crops. Yep, it is. So it breaks it down by crop. So you grow kale, uh, chard, all those have their own little, uh, not a chapter, but like a paragraph that covers it just paging through it as I go. Um, there's a section on problem solving, which has some stuff on pests and dealing with diseases and things that might go wrong with the straw bale that you can kind of set back right. Um, and then it has What Remains talks about using the compost and other materials from the bale, ways to reuse the bale one more time for a few other things that can grow in it okay, that sort of thing. Uh, so basically same thing as What Remains is gold from the other boat. So I guess the big question is, do you get the big book, or do you get the smaller, cheaper book? I would recommend both if you really want to dig into Strawbell gardening because they don't overlap 100%. They do overlap quite a bit in the preparing, getting everything ready. Um, Craigle Hillier's presentation is actually pretty good. I would recommend getting both books and probably like over time reading the bigger book. To get familiar with the method, all the different things you do with it. But as you're doing your initial straw bale, probably just skimming through Craig Hillier's book, especially if you're more focused on growing vegetables. Um, his book is going to be really good for just the basics of getting started. And then, so, you know, basically you want to cram this your first uh, year you're doing this just before you do it. And then over the season, you want to read the other book, integrate some of the ideas from that. And then, you know, maybe the next year you really dig in and try some of the new methods and stuff that are in the full straw bale gardening book. So I don't think they're so much at odds. I think they're complementary to one another. I think they definitely cover a lot, a little bit of the same material, but then they cover quite a bit of separate material that's very useful. Um, so I recommend them both. Uh, so it is Straw Bale Gardens complete. Uh, the updated edition was really nice. And Growing Vegetables in Straw Bales by Craig LaHuyere. Uh The first book was by Joel Carson. So I recommend them both. Thank you so much for listening. That wraps it up for this week. You can follow everything we're doing over at TJsGarden.com. And the best advertising we can get is word of mouth. So please share this show around with your friends uh, directly or via social media. Have a great day, guys, and enjoy your garden.